Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dev Educate. I'm Kamran Ayub. Today, I'm joined by Xavier Morera. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Kamran. How are you doing? I'm doing super well, and I'm very excited that you're here. But before we get into why you're here, for folks who are hearing you for the first time or maybe haven't seen your courses, do you mind sharing a little bit about who you are and what you do? So, okay. So my name is Xavier Moreira. I've been in the programming space for about 22 years now. I started my life basically moving content or migrating content, .NET content from BB6 to BB.NET and other platforms. Cause I was working for a company that was a provider for Microsoft. And besides doing the programming stuff, turned out that I was a decent enough at teaching people how to do some stuff. So they actually moved me more into the creating content and instructor-led training, which included a lot of evangelization and going places to meet with customers. So I, I had a big start in terms of teaching other people what I knew basically about 20 years ago. At the time, online training was not a big thing. We actually recorded some content. It was distributed via CDs, but not like it works today. So... Eventually this, I continued my life as a developer and eventually I became a plural site author. And from there on, I've been moving and creating all kinds of content and developing all types of instructor led trainings, online training, and a bunch of other stuff. So here I am 20 years of my life that I've spent most of my time either developing or training people on what I learned during those development years. Yeah, that's awesome. And and like you said, do you mostly focus on .NET or do you cover other different types of technologies? So I, I had my start in .NET even before 1.0 was released. Uh, the team that I was working with, we had to work with some private libraries that Microsoft had, the compatibility libraries, that's what they were called. So I got my start in .NET and I worked in .NET for many years, more or less until 2009. When I started working with a company called Search Technologies that they focused on enterprise search. So I started to do a bunch of stuff with solar and other search engines, which eventually took me into the big data space. And the big data space at some point started to just intersect with some of my .NET development, because as we know, the cloud came and now, you know, the lines are a little bit blurry on what's just regular programming and programming with large amounts of data. So now I focus a large part of my time with .NET, but I also spend a lot of time with big data and artificial intelligence and machine learning. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's great. And I think one thing that's interesting, like you, you mentioned, which was that you seem to have a knack for teaching developers. How did you discover that like ability or develop that skill? So first of all, I, I have a tendency to talk a lot. And it's a problem that I have <laughs> and I, I'm like a kid, I get excited about things. So if we're in some place and we're doing some work and somebody's doing something and I know how to, and I can add some value to what they're doing. I'm like, Hey, wait, 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 Cameron, let me show you. There, there's this pretty cool thing that you can do. So I kind of love that kind of thing. I have little kids. So sometimes when I start doing this, my oldest one goes like, oh yeah, here he goes again. <laughs> how you do things. And the one just, the little one just rolls her eyes like, yeah, here he goes again. But then when I teach them, they're pretty happy and, and they, they just go into the, you know, dad joke out of the dad joke mode. 
And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, he's, he's teaching us something. I discovered this basically when I started doing all these presentations and people were asking me stuff and I got really excited about things. So one thing is you may know some stuff, but there are some people that don't like to share. But in my case, when I know something, I'm like, I know, I know, let me help, let me help. So I'm, you know, that kind of person, the annoying one that's sometimes, you know, just tries to help everybody. I've learned to just give other people some space and start to let them discover for themselves, you know, instead of just me teaching. But that's that's a little bit of a different story because teaching adults is a little bit different than teaching kids. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, I, I'm really passionate about about teaching others about what I know. Yeah, I love that. And and what's important too is if you know something, and I hear, I guess I hear this all the time, sort of like, well, but I. I don't know, you know, that I want to do a talk on this or teach someone this because they're already going to know it. And usually my response is there's always going to be someone in the room who doesn't know what you know. And so it's always going to add value when you teach someone something that you know. I actually heard someone saying, someone say a few weeks ago, actually, that do you know why they still play the Flintstones on TV? And they're like, the Flintstones has been here since, what, 1965 or something? I was like, because mm, they're good? He's like, None, yes, but no, not really. The thing is that everybody, there's one person that's born that hasn't watched the, Winst- the Flintstones in his life. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing with programming. I mean, you may be in a, full ro- in a room full of people and you may know something and probably 80% of the people know it there. But you're like, hey, wait. What about this? And you tell them something and somebody's, somebody's going to go, oh, wait, that's pretty cool. That's interesting. That helps me. So there's, there's always someone who's willing or requiring to learn about something. So why don't you share it? Yes, yes, exactly. And, and I started right away when I joined my first company. Even as an intern, we would give presentations and I found that it was really fun. And, and we, I talk about like effective learning and we talked about this in a previous episode, but retention is around 95% when you teach something. So if you, if you really want to learn a topic, super what is the, is definitely the, the best way. And then it adds so much value to the people that you're teaching too. So it's just a, a win-win situation all around. Yes, I agree exactly on that. And talking about presentations. So, so here's a funny story. When I got started, I was doing internal presentations and teaching how you do some stuff, do some migrations, just internally. Turns out that some people liked it and they sent me to a presentation. I think it was in Mexico. No, and and sorry, in Miami. And I did this one. It went well. They sent me to Puerto Rico. Still like 20 people in the room. It's just like a a meetup. That time there was no meetup, but it was just like a meetup. Then that worked well. They sent me to another in Guadalajara and in Monterrey, Mexico. And it's like, I'm getting the hang of it, like, you know, like 50 people or something. And then they sent me to one in Mexico, <laughs> Mexico DF. So I, I walk in, it was a big place or whatever. And, I, and then I just get out and I see the stage. There's 1,500 people in front of me. So oh I jumped my. straight from 20 to 1,500. So that was a little bit of a, that was a little bit of a hard <laughs> introduction yeah. into public speaking. Cause it was like my fifth or sixth presentation. I just made that big jump so that's that's really funny and yeah that's got to have some shock there when at what point did you start doing like recorded courses so as i mentioned when i after i did all these things for the migration 
I was moved into a project with Microsoft on the 64-bit computing platform. We were teaching all the Microsoft partners worldwide to how to migrate their code from 32-bit to 64-bit computing. At the time, it was Itanium. Then that didn't work out, so it was X64. While we were doing those projects, those, you know, that that wrote that project, which was somewhere around 2003 to 2005 or six, kind of those years, we were recording some of our content and putting it on DVDs. Okay. Uh, okay. To send all over the place, but it was we still had to edit it. It was like a very early version. Yeah. Of Camtasia. It was very early. You put the CD, didn't even play anywhere. I mean, YouTube was barely being invented at the end of my time. Um, but actually, when I started doing recorded content, it was actually for Pluralsight, which was in 2013 as online training, which the, there's a funny story of how I I basically met these people. I mean, Pluralsight, while I was doing presentations and trainings and building 20 Microsoft, because they were also doing the same thing, in-person trainings, just like I was. So we met some of these people and they were saying that they were going to go start doing online trainings. Um, but a, a year or two passed before one day I was like, hey, you know what? I remember those guys. And I sent them an email because I was working at this company. I, went, I was giving the same training over and over and over and over again. It's like, maybe I can record this and I'll just point them to, mm -hmm. to basically to Pluralsight. I did. I basically did my, well, I did the audition. You have to go through several interviews. They approved me. They approved my topic. And funny enough, even though I'm a .NET developer and a big data search developer, this was a course on Agile, how to use Jira with Agile methodologies, because that's something that I was, we were moving our team. The, the two hardest things that I, that I had, mostly because of people were, convincing people to use agile methodologies because waterfall wasn't quite cutting it and the other one was moving from like svn or team team foundation system team foundation server sorry to mm -hmm. git those were like mm -hmm. the two things and i have courses on both i have in jira and i have courses on git but that was my first course i that was in 2013 a couple of years after i met these people after i met pluralsight and, but that was my first course. I've done 31 since then. I, I'm a full, part-time, full-time author. So I work full-time on courses, part-time of my time, because I also do consulting. I have a software as a service application. I also have a, a support center in Costa Rica that provides services to American companies around technology. So I have multiple things. So when I, when I get a course, I work full-time on it for part-time of my life. So. 2013 would be probably the year that was the, that's the quick answer to what nice. you just asked. No, yeah, that's, that's awesome. So you've done over 30 courses since then. And so what was your, what was your recording setup like starting out? Because this episode, I'm sure we could talk about so many different topics, but I really want to get into your journey to creating your own recording studio and to hopefully help the audience in understanding like when uh, when they could consider doing something like that. Cause I'm doing the same thing. It's going to be a, a room in my backyard and, and I'll be doing recording in there, but it's not the only purpose of it, but you have your own dedicated recording studio, but let's start at the beginning when you were starting out in 2013, like what was your setup like then? Okay. So first of all, everybody's circumstances are different. Everybody's budget can vary wildly. Mm -hmm. So in my case, I was recently married. I had my 
first kid already, I was like, I married in 2000, was married in 2009. My first kid was 2011. 2013 was when my second kid was about to be born. So I was very tight in terms of economically speaking. I mean, we, you know, you have to really count your pennies when you're just buying a house, having a kid, you, have, you know, buy a car, you know how life works. When I, when I sent the email to jobs at Thrillsite, I still have the copy of the email, which I look at it from time to time. When I sent, when, when they approved me, I basically, I had a work computer. I had a Camtasia license. They, they reimbursed you anyway, but I, I still had one because we were doing some little stuff, but not, not as recorded training. So I basically had to buy a microphone. So I got a $50 microphone. It's called a Snowball Blue Yeti microphone or something like that. Okay. And which I still have it here in my office. It's in the entrance to remind me of where I started. So I got this microphone and I started doing the audio tests. So I started to look for, well, in my desk, there was a lot of echo reverb and a lot of people and machines and everything. So that didn't work out. I went to one of those little booths that the, the company had for, and I had to ask for permission, right? It's not like I just sneaked in and mm -hmm. to ask my boss, like, hey, is it okay if I record some stuff here? And he was like, yeah, yeah go ahead, man, don't worry. <laughs> so I went to one of those little phone booths that some companies have for conference calls. And I sent my, my audio to Pluralsight. They're like, no, that's a lot of echo. So then I went to another, um, just a conference room. That one didn't work out. And then I found another, in another floor, I found a small conference room that was far away from the street because that was a problem with the second one. You could hear the cars go by and the Uber Eats. So that one actually worked out, but my laptop was really noisy. So basically I had to put my laptop on the floor mm -hmm. under the desk, just get <laughs> some long cables and put a, just put a monitor and uh, a keyboard, which I had to use. In my earlier courses, you can still sometimes hear my, when I'm typing, my newer courses, no, because now I found a version of a keyboard that's completely silent. You can't tell anything. Even the clicks when I was like clicking on the mouse to move to the next one. And my editing skills were not really good. I mean, compared to what I have now, which we're going to get there soon, it was, it was a struggle. Sometimes you were just recording something and somebody opened the door. It was like, Hey, Doug, you want to go get something? It's like. No, please let's start again. Yeah. And I was, you know, in a borrowed conference room. It's not like I could be picky. I start recording at night. That was a lot better. Although you know how some developers stay very late and they're like, Hey, what are you doing, man? You know, cooking an egg, I don't know, surgery or whatever. Just oh, leave me alone. That's so, funny. so that's, yeah, that's how I started basically. Yeah. I think um, there's a couple points there that are worth talking about, or at least just mentioning, which is when you start recording, one of the first things that I learned was that your environment uh, matters a lot because my air conditioner that's in my basement used to be really loud and fans on my computer used to be pretty loud. And the keyboard that I had also was pretty loud. And so all these different things, as you're recording, if you're trying to record a demo and you're typing at the same time, then it's going to, it's going to be distracting and it's just not going to sound good. So you have to adjust your process. But I think it just, it, it didn't, it didn't occur to me that my computer or my laptop would, you know, be a problem when I started recording. So I think that's, that's one thing to point out for people 
if you just if you're thinking about doing video recording, you'll have to pay attention to your equipment and you might have to adjust some of the hardware that you're using. That's correct. I mean, some laptops, they, they sound like a helicopter. So mm -hmm. <laughs> that's why the Mac M ones are so good. Cause they don't have a fan. I have one in my, I have a whisper room. We'll get to this soon. It, it doesn't have a fan. It, you never hear a noise coming out or a beep okay. or a short, anything from, from the machine. That's awesome. So, and I have a PC, but if, if someone wants to use their Mac for recording, that seems like a great idea. Then you won't have to deal with the fan noise. Yes. <laughs> so, and then, and then you mentioned the Blue Yeti microphone, which is a pretty popular microphone. I know a few people that have Blue Yetis and, and, and like you said, they're not too expensive. In fact, the, the, the microphone that I'm using right now and have used for all of my courses was like a, I think a $75 Audio-Technica. Um, it's a USB with an XLR. I mean, XLR is, is like a microphone cable. That's the connector, but it also works as a USB microphone. And that one was only about $75. So the reason I, I say that is like you said, if you're on a budget, you do not need like a $250 or $500 microphone to just get started with recording. You can, you can use budget hardware and it works just fine. Yes. That's correct. So, but here's one thing that I did. I, I started with that $50 microphone and since I had a day job, my day job was the one that I was using for paying for basically living, eating the kids, everything. But what I was doing is I was saving pretty much all, everything that all the money that came from Pluralsight to buy new stuff. So one of the things that I added after, or that I bought once I started to get some money was. I bought like a $200 microphone that actually the one that I'm using right now. So I bought this one like in 2014 or 2015 and what's like seven years. It still works really well. It's a very good quality. It's a Rode podcaster microphone works really well. Then I bought a quiet machine, which is one of those desktops that they don't have a fan. They're fanless. So they're liquid cooled or whatever. So that one lasted me like six years. That one was like 3000 bucks. So that was a pretty good, pretty big investment. but. But again, I was saving basically all the money that I got from Pluralsight. I was putting it back into the business, say, well, just paying the taxes and then saving for the business to try to be, buy new equipment. Cause I, I, I really like doing online trainings and I was like, this is what I want to do. But it took me like from 2013, I had a day job until late 2018. So it took me five years to be able to just move out of my day job and dedicate myself to consulting and creating courses at the same time. Mm -hmm. Other things that I bought when I got more money, but this was a little bit more expensive, what's called a whisper room, which is a, a recording booth where I go in, I have a couple of monitors. Now I have a Mac M1 with what's called a DBX 286S. That's a DS or it's a, it's a big thing. It looks like a server. You connect your XLR microphone there. And it basically just regulates your sound, compresses it where required, removes the big S's because I tend to like, <laughs> yeah, a lot of times that goes into, you know, an XLR, an audiogram that connects mm. to the M1 computer. So everything's silent. And the nice thing is that I have what's called an Assure SM35 microphone, which is a, it's an XLR microphone, but it's, it's a, it go, it's a headset microphone. So it's always at the same distance from your mouth. So one of the big advantages of having this is that sometimes I have to update old courses 
So recently I updated a course that was from like 20, like three years old or two, three years old. And because I recorded it in that same booth with that same microphone, I, I can, when I'm doing the update, I can just drop in new sentences and my voice really hasn't changed. So it, it doesn't look, so I can just record pieces of text and it sounds pretty much the same. Also, when I'm editing, I'm like, oh, I should have said something like this. I can go in and just record that piece that I wanted to say. And now I have a full-time video editor on staff. So I just send it to her and she just removes the other words, puts in the words and I have to do nothing. And so the, the funny, the good thing about having a, a whisper room with this kind of microphone is that your voice is very, very consistent. So you can just make changes, do the editing, and you don't have to re-record the entire module, chapter, clip, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a super pro tip because, you know, one of the, if you're, if you're like a business and you're creating video training, you also have to maintain it because your software is going to evolve over time. And as Pluralsight authors, we have to maintain our courses. It's the same, same thing you would have to do for any kind of recorded video. And so the steps you can take to like reduce that amount of rework that you would have to do, I mean, using a, a headset microphone that lets you sound the same, you know, over time is, is really awesome. It's not something that I've tried doing yet, but it's definitely a pain point, even for me. Like if, even if I move, like I can, you can hear this, if I move back from my microphone, it's hard to hear. And if I move them really close, then it's also the noise, you know, the audio profile is totally different depending on the distance of your mouth from the microphone. So having something that keeps it consistent is like a really nice pro tip. I love that. Yeah. Also, so a whisper room probably starts like four or 5,000 bucks and up, the bigger they are, the more expensive they are. And they're even, there's another one called Studio Bricks, which is pretty cool as well. Um, and they're very, very heavy. I mean, I live in Costa Rica, so shipping it from the U.S. to Costa Rica, I think was like almost as much as buying the thing. Well, not that much, <laughs> but it was really, really expensive to send it. And, but if you can't afford buying a whisper room, because you have no idea how many years I had to save to be able to get that one, you can also get an isolation shield, which is like a, there are some like, I don't know, like foam, just like a castle or a structure or something. And you put the microphone inside. So when you're talking, there's no echo. Everything just, it's absorbed by the foam. So an isolation shield, which would be like a hundred bucks or something, mm -hmm. it, it can really make your sound, make you sound a lot better. Yeah, that's a good one. And and then I also use, well, not also, I use a pop, a pop filter in front of in front of my mic. And I, I have not tried the isolation isolation shield. So that is a great tip. And then for for folks who are, you know, working at home, which many of us do nowadays, and they don't maybe have a conference room that they can go to at their work. What are like the different options that you've that you've tried to record either at home or, or renting a space or some of those different ways of finding, finding a good space to do recording. Yeah. So I, depending on what I'm doing, I also like working from home, even though I have my own really nice recording studio that I love coming here. But today, just an hour ago, we had, a, we just did a sound check, you and I, and I was at home. There was a little bit of a reverb because I was using, I was using a Jetty also a Yeti microphone. The isolation shield is the best. I, the, the one that I used 
what's called a Kaorika eyeball. It's a thing that you kind of put just a microphone inside and you speak like into a ball. It mm. looks like the eye of Sauron or something <laughs> like that, but it, it, it works really well. The thing about your house is first do that. You have to, to avoid the reverb. For my studio, I had to do a lot of sound treatment. So I, it, there's some special, special material on the walls called OBS or OSB, which is like, it's like some kind of wood. And then all around it's covered in ATS acoustic panels. Mm -hmm. And then the ceiling is covered in something that's called black theater which is just a, like a three inch or two inch thick foam that absorbs all the sound. Cause it's, my ceilings are like, like seven meters high. That's like 20 feet or something. And so there's a lot of echo. So I had to do a lot of treatment, sound treatment here. Also, I, I have the, I'm in a building, so I can't modify the front windows. So I basically put a second set of windows and a second door on on both sides and actually they're they're extra thick the guy who installed them even told me that they're bulletproof it's not that i have enemies it's just that um this is a, a pretty big building i'm in the seventh floor and there's one of the main streets is in front so if i open the windows there's a lot of sound mm. uh, but when i close everything so it's it's i don't know i could do yoga or meditation here without hearing even a pin drop so I, I basically built myself my studio. I built it so that it's like a cocoon where I can just work in peace if I get to shut down my email. But at home, you need to at least build some, put some foam to avoid the reverb. The isolation shield works. And just just record when the kids or the dog are not around because the dog is the, the my biggest thing at home. I mean, the dog gets overexcited when there's a, another dog goes by the window. Yep, so yep. Kids and dogs tend to be your biggest interruptions. Kids, dog, neighbors, planes overhead. Yeah, it, finding a good a good time to record is key. When I was doing earlier courses and I had a full time job, I didn't record during the day because I was working, but I would just record at night when everybody was sleeping, and that was a good time to do it. Now, since I work for myself, I can record during the day, which is great because the kids are at school. And and then I got the the audio foam. It, you can pick them up on Amazon. They are like, they're squares, but they have triangle ridges. I, I think they're just called audio foam, and there might be, you know, specific kinds you can get. But what's nice about them is you can sort of place them around your room. So I placed them above me. And then on the the walls facing me, and uh, and that seemed to create a much better sound quality. So if you're at home and you need to create a little recording area, you can do that. I've heard people will sometimes go into their closets because of the clothes also dampen sound and can sometimes make it sound better. That would be a little claustrophobic for me, but if you don't have like a big space, you could find a closet to go and record into. That'll be your whisper room. <laughs> yes. Actually, there's, there's this theater actress that I hired a few months ago just to help me a little bit with my delivery. Cause I know my, I know my tech stuff and I know how to do, you know, how to do good presentations. Cause I did that for many years, but I basically hired her cause she was teaching me how to breathe when I was recording. I'm like, I'm, I'm 40 something. I know how <laughs> to breathe. And she's like, no, let me teach you how to breathe. And she showed me a lot of tips and tricks. It was like a two day seminar, but she showed me a lot of tips and tricks on how to be able to breathe better, to be able to do longer sentences, how to just my intonation, because I, 
I'm, I think I'm not boring. I hope I'm not boring, but sometimes I, I forgot about the intonation when I was just too focused on something technical. Mm-hmm. So we made a lot, we did a lot of exercises, how to do emphasis, when to do pauses. So, you know, it's something you can pay someone or you can, there are pre, plenty of books and YouTube videos that just tell you how to do it also, but it's something that you need to practice by yourself to try to improve your delivery. Yeah, that's a great tip. I have not tried that yet. And I feel like I'll need to have like a different episode on delivery and, and like speaking tips. And there's so, so many different things related to that. And that's, that's such a great, that's such a great tip. I I don't think I would have ever thought about hiring a, like a theater professional to like teach me how to do my courses better. That wouldn't have occurred to me. So I love that. Yeah, actually I hired one of those. I hired her. Then once I hired a director, a movie director here in Costa Rica, we met and we went to the same high school and we, and I also have a professional cameraman who helps me. But again, some of the things that I've done, like this professional cameraman, he's worked for Amazon, Prime, Netflix, Bloomberg, and a whole bunch of stuff. He's actually the one who designed the studio. So what we do is he helps me with all these things. And then when he needs the studio, he comes and uses it. So we kind of do like a, a nice. swap thing. Funny thing was like, I was filming an executive briefing on big data for Pluralsight a few months ago. And it was filmed on a Wednesday. So he came here and was like, hey, what were you doing the weekend? It's like, I was in Dominican Republic filming Vin Diesel for the release of Fast and Furious <laughs> 9 or something. It was like, you went from Vin Diesel to Xavier Moreno. So that's that's a little bit of bigger of a drop, right? So he was laughing. And he, he told me he was there at, at Vin Diesel's mansion just filming, you know, for the release, just an interview or something. So I, I've been able to hire several people in my career. Some of them, we do exchanges like, Hey, you teach me these and you do that. Or the actress, she told me that she also records audiobooks, And she told me that she records in her closet with her clothes around. So what you said is yeah, spot on. Mm-hmm. So she looked at my whisper room and you could see her face. It's like a kid looking like an ice cream <laughs> store or something. She was like, this is nice. Yeah. So- yeah. I was like, yeah, you can come and use it whenever you want. So it's pretty cool. Actually, this guy, the the uh, cameraman, yeah, I call a filmmaker. He was here three weeks ago with a CNN anchor filming an interview with his wife because his wife, she's a painter and she does NFTs and a whole bunch of stuff. And this CNN anchor, she lives in Atlanta, Georgia. She was here in Costa Rica and they were talking about the NFTs. They're like, hey, why don't we set up an interview? And he basically, they came here. They did the interview at MySpace, the, you know, it was pretty cool. The, mm-hmm. the studio worked really, really well. That's awesome. So you could, so this brings up an interesting point where if you, if you had the means to create or yeah, create like a, your own recording studio for yourself or even for your like organization, like you could share it, like it could be a shared space and you could even rent it out if you needed to like find the funding or, or sort of reuse it, not, not just for yourself, but also open it up. For others too. Yes, I actually made the numbers. So yeah, I basically had to apply for a small business loan to be able to get the studio and everything. So it was a, it's been a long ride, right? But I made the numbers and if I rent it for two days a month, two, three days, probably two or three days a month, it would pay the, the monthly, the mortgage. So basically that's a good business. If you have enough people that want to use your studio. Yeah. Between two to three. That's awesome. 
And uh, oh, and speaking of renting, before building your studio, did you try renting out spaces to do recording? Yes. So I, well, there was one, there's this company who they do, they do VR trainings and a bunch of other stuff. And uh, they actually, while I was building my, my studio, I had to record executive briefing and they let me use their space. It was not a studio, but it was a nice room. So I was able to just, I actually had to buy some foams and put them on the, on the sides to be able to record and put some drapers and, and some towels. But a couple of, a couple of times, actually two. I, I was on the road and I was under a very tight deadline and I was on the road because I had a consulting gig. So what I did is I, I looked for recording places and both of those places, they had whisper rooms, actually pretty big ones. And they rented them like for 75 bucks an hour or something. So in two hours, you can get a lot done if you plan ahead in advance. So you have to be very careful because you have very little time and they're charging you by the hour. So I, I use them a couple of times. It's pretty good because it forces you to plan everything, just go and record. But now that I have my own studio, I can work at my own pace on my schedule. Whenever I want to record, the only thing I need to do is just look back and say, Alexa, turn on the whisper room strip light. And then Alexa is going to say that, hmm. you know, it's on right now. I just go in, I turn on the computer. I just do a git pull for all my materials and that's it. So it's really, really convenient to have your own studio. You could work at your own time, long hours, and depending on how much you're recording at some point, you know, at 75 bucks an hour, which is what I was being charged to use those whisper rooms, that can add up like really, really quickly. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. And yeah, that's, that's awesome for sure. So the other thing I wanted to mention too, for for renting. So you've got that option to rent out these spaces by the hour. And the other thing that I've looked into is if, if there are any co-working spaces by you, a lot of the newer ones are starting to add like a podcast studio or like a recording studio so that if you just have a membership to these co-working spaces, which you pay by the month or even just pay for, you know, X amount of days per month, you can access their recording studio. And so that's another option that's maybe a little bit more budget friendly if you don't have the space in your house, but you live close by to a co-working space. That's another option too. Yep. That's awesome. And so the, the journey to create this studio, like what, what was the deciding factor for investing in, in, in building a studio? Was it just simply because you, you knew you wanted to just keep creating courses and you wanted dedicated space? Like what kind of went into that decision? So I, so I was basically starting, it was around 2018 when I was basically going on my own and I, I needed an office. And at the, at that time I had a very small, a three by three, that's in meters, it's like 10 by 10 foot room in the, my family business. So I was just working from there. I basically, th there was a train nearby and it was kind of noisy. So I basically built a bunker. I did a double set of fiberglass and gypsum layers on the wall and got a, an acoustic bl blanket for the door. But I had very little air because <laughs> everything was very, very tight. Mm -hmm. So uh, I used that one for, for some time. But I needed to have my own office. So that's when I started to look for some, for some space where I could build my office. 
I started to look at the options of, you know, what a bank would lend me to, so I could borrow to buy an office and, you know, everything started to like fall into place and I was able to get a, a very decent loan for a very nice place. And, and basically I just built it because I, I knew that I wanted to build courses for a living. It's not what I do full-time, as I mentioned, I do it uh, part-time, full-time, but it's something that I, I really enjoy doing and I'm very passionate about. So why not make the jump and, you know, instead of just dipping your toes in the water, because I already did that, just jump into the pool. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. And, and that's not even counting the fact that you can then turn it into an asset, like when you're not using it. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. That's awesome. So I think one thing that's interesting, do you mind sharing like what, what have been the results of switching to like a dedicated studio? Have you noticed, you know, like course viewership increasing or any other kind of like outcomes from switching or was it, was it only, you know, beneficial from like a personal perspective? Okay. So one thing, and I think the main thing for me is that my life became a lot easier. I have this place to record when I want. I have all the resources that I need. I have the computers, the equipment, the microphone, whenever I need to do some filming, because I've been adding live video to my courses, my pluralsight courses. So it, it makes my life a lot easier. Um, I have a very good video editor. She's been on staff full time for the last five years. I hope she stays for many more years to come because she's great. And, um, and the quality of my courses, I would say the content, it's still the same in terms of quality. Cause I think my quality before was good. It's still good. I've been improving, but I think the main thing about having my own studio is, is my ability to create courses anytime when I want re-record stuff. My life is way easier right now. Yeah. And, uh, and for hiring help, is, is the video editor the, ed, or sorry, is the video editor the only hired help that you have for this studio? Or do you have people in the studio while you're recording? How does that process so work? When I record, I usually have like a cameraman. It's usually Sebastian. That's the guy who helps me or Catalina. I basically bounce between the two. Sebastian is the one who, who helped me build the studio. The editor, her name is Marisol, but I have a second video editor when there's a lot of work called Alejandra, but she's only by the hour. Sol is the only one who's full-time. I also have three developers who help me on a bunch of other stuff. Sometimes they review my examples or help me with some stuff. But for the, for the video, the online learning, she's the one that's dedicated full-time for this. Okay, cool. So if, and I want to kind of put it in perspective too, for if there are like advocates or developer relations professionals listening who are creating recorded content, you don't have to do every single thing yourself. If you are not comfortable with video editing or audio editing, there are people that your organization can hire that can do that work. There might even be people within your organization or on your team, you know, that can do some of that work like the. I think what's important to point out here is like Xavier, your content, the content quality has been great throughout the entire time. It's just that, you know, the, the tools and the way that you record and your process has evolved so that you can just do more things. You can do live video, you can do more, you know, more 
fancy types of training, but just the the basics of getting a microphone that's pretty decent, having your laptop, setting up a quiet environment. That's those are the really key things to start creating content. You don't need to get all this fancy equipment to to have to have the best type of content. That's not that's not what dictates the quality of your content. It's you know how you actually plan out and and design your content. And so if you need help to do video editing or audio editing and all these other things to be able to do recorded video, there's help available that you can get. Yeah. And I think the most important thing is just start. Stop just waiting for the right conditions. Just get a microphone and start recording. It's not like you're, you know, releasing something to a hundred million people and that everybody's watching what you want. What you're doing, just release something, you'll get something to like it, then you'll improve it. And you get better with time. It's, I mean, I, I, the quality of my content, but th by that, I mean, the technical stuff is great. But when I, when I hear myself from those videos from 2014, I'm like, oh crap. It's just, <laughs> so if I have to do an update, which I'm going to have to do an update pretty soon on a, on a Kanban course, if I do an update there of my old stuff, there's no way that I'm just going to be slotting in little things. I'll just re-record the whole thing. For my newer content, now that I have a process, a standardized process with my equipment that's perfect for what I'm doing, I can now slot in little things and just modify some clips for my older stuff. Even though the content was pretty good, the delivery was not that great because I was just recording you know, in a room where I had some echo or something, it was good, but it's not the same quality that I get now. So it, it's just a matter of just start. Don't worry if it's not perfect. Things don't, perfect is, is the opposite of good. Just do your stuff and start improving as you go along. Yeah, exactly. And before we wrap up, this has been such a fun conversation and I have a kind of a bonus fun question. And it, I wanted to ask for, for those of you who haven't actually watched Xavier's courses yet, I'm going to put all these links in the show notes to the equipment and, and stuff like that. But I wanted to uh, point directly to your new .NET 6 big picture course, because one of the most fun things that I saw right, right away is you have your live video in your studio and you're, you're talking about who the audience is. And then you have yourself come in from the right side of the frame into the video, dressed up as these different characters. And I'm like, oh my God, how did you do that? <laughs> that that's a really fun one. So for that big picture, as you were saying, I basically just start setting up the the, the stage to for my audience. So maybe you're just a, a senior .NET developer and it's me asking this question. And then I come, you know, as you said, from the right, dressed up with a Microsoft MVP shirt because I was an MVP, or maybe you're a junior developer and I come with my Pluralsight hoodie, or maybe you're a project manager and I come in my version of all dressed up with a button shirt. So those things are pretty fun. I, I've used a double, the, the me multiple times, me several times. Another one was me having a conversation with myself mm -hmm. on which one is better, an enterprise search, a search engine or a database search. Because being a search engineer, I've had this conversation many times where I get somewhere and we're supposed to be implementing a search API and they're like, but we already have database search. I'm like, yeah, uh -huh. database search doesn't work at all. <laughs> but people are like, oh yeah, it works. I was like, yeah, for that, like three, five or five K test cases that you did, 
but that was a pretty cool one. I, I, I love that one, the big data. That's so funny. How, how did you actually get the, how did you do the production of that, like splicing you yourself? Was it two different videos that you took and you spliced them together? How does it that was, actually work? It was a single take. So I'm filming myself and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just talking. And uh, this one's a little bit easier because second, third, and fourth me don't say a thing. But in the other ones where they had to have a conversation, I had to have someone else just doing the words for the timings so that I was, you know, nodding or saying something to interact. So it's just me. I film myself saying some stuff, thinking about the timings. Then I just go out. The camera is still running. And I change the shirt and I go in kind of, you know, with my first shirt, go out second, third, and then my video editor just comes in. And if you look closely at that, she did such a good job that you can actually see how the, the shadows, they, they overlay in top of, on top of each other. Hmm. But it's hmm. a pretty good one. The, you know, the big picture for .NET. I love doing that one for .NET 6. Yeah, that's awesome. And I invite people to go check that out to see what a world-class live video looks like in online training. I love it. So my last question for you, Xavier, it's time for the drop an apple. So this is your chance to drop some knowledge on the audience. Are you ready? Yes, go ahead. All right. So what's one thing you wish someone had told you early on about creating content and education for developers? So that one is, I think it's, it's a combination of things, but it, but I'll, I'll try this one The the just start doing, well, actually, let me put it this way. Have you ever heard about the Dunning-Kruger? Yes, I think so, but you should remind everybody. Yeah. So what it basically says is there are four levels. The first level is you do not know that you do not know. The second, yeah, that's when you're saying something and you're wrong. Second level is you know that you do not know. So you're aware that you're not doing things right. The third one is you know, and you're aware you know, but other people don't. And then the fourth one is what really good developers usually have, which is they know, but they don't, can't understand why someone else can't do the same things that you're doing. So what you need to do is when you're teaching something that you really know very well, always try to teach it in such a way so that people that do not know are able to pick it up. I know it sounds very straightforward and it's, it's not rocket science, but the problem is that something, sometimes people try to say things in such a complicated way. Just use simple words, use simple examples. Just put yourself in the other person's shoes to take them from not knowing to knowing. It sounds simple, but it's not as simple as it sounds. Put yourself in your learner's shoes. Yes, I love it. All right. So that was such a fantastic conversation. Where can people go to find out more to learn about you and what you're up to? So just, just go to my Pluralsight page. If you can just put the link to my, you'll see the courses. I have a lot of courses on big data, I have some on machine learning, .NET development, which is what I'm working on right now. I basically finished my last .NET course last Friday. Today I got a, it's basically a C-sharp 10 best practices course. So if you wanna be a good coder in C-sharp, you should watch that course. It's supposed to be released this Thursday. So just go to my Pluralsight page. That's the, Perfect. That's where you should go. Yep, and I will definitely include a link to that. Well, this was so much fun, Xavier. Thank you for chatting with me today. 
Thank you very much to you. I really enjoyed this conversation. Awesome. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Xavier. Here are the things I thought were worth pointing out when it comes to developer marketing and education. As Xavier said, as Xavier said, just start. Don't wait for the perfect moment or time to get started with video recording. Buy some of the entry-level equipment we talked about, which I've put in the show notes, and get yourself out there. Investing in recording equipment may not make you produce content faster, but it definitely improves the quality, which is a direct reflection of your brand. I think amateur video on your phone has its place in developer marketing, you know, like for making memes, but for professional grade video, you're going to want to invest in your DevRel team so they have the environment and equipment to succeed. You have so many options that we talked about. You could rent out space for your DevRel team to do recording. You could provide a stipend for co-working spaces. You could provide a stipend for your home office studio, or you could buy a whisper room for the office or for team members, or the ultimate investment, build your own studio. Xavier talked about the Dunning-Kruger effect. The Dunning-Kruger effect is a cognitive bias where we tend to overestimate how well we'll perform a task. In fact, The more expert you are, the more you're likely to overestimate how much you can do. Maybe that sounds negative, but all it means is that we need to be self-aware enough to know what we don't know. I've included a link to a TED Talk by David Dunning that explains a little bit more about this. Do you have the curse of knowledge? That's related. It turns out we have a very hard time explaining things that we're a subject matter expert in. Xavier mentioned briefly he has some developers that review his technical content. That's a way to help protect yourself and counteract that curse of knowledge. Have your peers review your content or go a step further and observe as learners go through your learning experience like you would a user experience study. I've included a webinar from the MIT Sloan School of Management on why professionals struggle to explain their work. Want to become a better public speaker? This is called elocution coaching, like eloquence, and you might be able to find people in your city that have classes or one-on-one coaching. I've included a link to a coach in Minneapolis near me, for example. Just to get meta for a second, elocution is why these takeaways at the end of each episode have a different speech pattern than when I interview guests. That's it for this week. I'm Kamran Ayub, and I hope you'll join me again next time for Dev Educate. If you'd like to learn more about developer education and how it can help you grow your open source product or developer tool, just go to devedtestkitchen.com. Join other professional developer content chefs so we can all learn together how to cook up better gourmet content that educates and inspires developers. You can also reach out to me directly with questions or comments through my website or on Twitter at Kamran Ayub. I hope you have a lovely day.